Let us pray. Father God, as we look to this, your word this morning, may it feed us, may it sustain us, may it teach us, may it instruct us, may we draw closer to you through the power of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure I've said this already in this series, but we're in a book in the Bible where to think of Egypt as just ancient Egypt is a mistake. Throughout the remainder of Scripture, Egypt will become a symbol, really a symbol for the world. Um, We're kind of a little more uh, familiar with Babylon also being a symbol of this. But this becomes an enduring symbol of the world. And so the book thus far is... The Hebrew people, the the word that means basically set apart one, the one that stands on the other side of the river, uh, they seem to be in this world that is ruled by this godless uh, enemy, this Pharaoh, and it is now a time for exodus. It is now a time for evil to basically be judged in such a way that it brings a greater peace going forward. And we've already seen God began this battle last time we were in Exodus. An evil that was trying to restrain His people from worshiping Him. And then actually we even took an excursus uh, into the book of Revelation and we saw that in God's judgments again come peace. That's that's an important refrain. Uh, It was said even in Sunday school by Jesse of how we, we kind of tend to avoid singing songs about wrath or judgment. And, and, and really, I would say that culture has extended all into the church. We don't know what to do with judgment passages. And if there's one thing I hope that everybody learns as we go through passages that a lot of churches would avoid because they make us uncomfortable, judgment passages. As we go through these passages, I hope that at the end of it all, you can see the kind of biblical idea that through judgment comes peace. That there's essentially a sword that cuts both ways, and and for some it, it might be a different kind of peace established than the other, but God uses judgment in order to establish peace. We'll look at that more throughout the, the text this morning. But that's important to, to kind of think about because... I I want you to think about this Exodus story just for a second and think about it from the perspective of what the Egyptian news network, ENN, would have said on that day. They would have said during these ten plagues, these ten judgments. What would ENN have said? ENN would have made God the villain. They would have been able to put on their screens these heart-wrenching stories of judgment. And, and they would have easily been able to concoct a story that would give you all the feels of how these pitiful Egyptians are so put upon by this God of the Hebrews. And they could so twist truth and twist reality that it would great, cause great confusion. But of course we don't have to worry about that in our day, right? 
Not every sob story. Not every heart-wrenching tale of judgment, of hardship being placed upon a person, is necessarily bad. I can think of some of the worst things I've done in life, and uh, the, the worst of all things... God used for my salvation to bring me to faith in Christ. Created a hardship that was so hard to bear that I, I just thought I was, I was damned to hell. And yet through God's judgment comes peace. Through people experiencing hardships as they try to find any, other, any identity except an identity in Christ, as we'll pridefully hear all next month. It's not going to bring any peace. There's only one identity that brings peace. There's only one judgment, the judgment on the cross, that brings peace. And so at the start of this, I think it's important just to take a step back for a moment and realize we could create an amazing story that made God to sound like the villain. But, and, and hopefully even still remember, this is 80 years of suffering that God's people have endured in Egypt. If you remember, even before Moses was born, even the text shows us that the people of Egypt were happy about Pharaoh's desire to kind of in the herd of Hebrews. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful about uh, how we walk in this world with topics like wrath, topics like judgment. And I also want to say this as an encouraging note. By the end of these judgments, it will not just be Hebrews that are saved. Egyptians will be a part of that multitude. Midianites and other groups. They will be a part of the multitude. They will actually have seen the judgments and they will have come to believe in the God of spirit and truth. But we humans quickly get sidetracked. We redefine freedom and we recenter the story. We follow, fall into the temptation of wanting a God who will allow us to stay connected to Egypt rather than a God who cries out, I want the power of Egypt to let go of you. The power of the world to let go of you. Do you really want the power of Egypt to let go of you today? Did you come here wanting the power of Egypt to let you go, the things of this world to let you go? It's an important question for us to ask ourselves. The Exodus story is a story of escape from such powers. It's Memorial Day tomorrow, and people will celebrate when American soldiers sacrificed in their own way for freedom, for peace, for in liberation. And I must say, one of the hardest videos I saw all year was a, a, a Marine who stormed the beaches of Normandy, just sobbing at the state of the world in our present day. Basically crying that how his comrades did not lay down their lives to secure a freedom uh, that like the world's trying to define right now, like our nation's trying to define right now, but a freedom that was a freedom to be faithful unto the Lord, to worship the Lord, to live in his statutes. 
And I resonated with that video because sometimes, I guess, as, as a pastor, I feel this tension. I feel the same way about Jesus and the sacrifice on the cross. That it's a sacrifice that, that was established to give us liberty, to give us freedom, to give us peace. To free us from the Egypt of the world and the sins of the world. And, and yet, so often we can fall in the trap of wanting to live like an Egyptian, but we have a God who cries out to Egypt, let my people go. He wants the world to be removed from us. The patterns of the world, the thoughts of the world, the desires of the world. Exodus is not a story of God rescuing his people from slavery so they could be a better Egyptian citizen. No, Exodus is a story where God in his judgment created a contrast between his people and faithless people. And in one sense, that's what we come here every week to be renewed in, to remember we are people to be people of the contrast. We are to be contrast in this world. And, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm making too much of these plagues, but... Um, you know, recently we celebrated the Seder meal at our church. In that traditional meal, there are elements of this meal that remind the Jewish practitioner of it, still in our day, but also Christian practitioners of how strongly God judged sin in order to call out his people out of Egypt so that they more, might worship him more faithfully. And still to this day, the Jewish people are a distinct people in the world because they, um, to varying degrees, there are Jewish communities that, that understand they're not to be of the world in, in the fullness of ways. They understand the exodus of Moses has called them to something greater. How much more than we with the fullness of Revelation, we with understanding that the true exodus is the exodus ushered in by Christ, how much more should we be separate and distinct from the thoughts and patterns and ideologies of the world. So all of that before we enter into the plagues. The first plague we're going to talk about, the ESV calls gnats. It's most certainly not gnats. I, I, I kind of know some people who were on this translation team. I, I want to have a conversation. How did you get there? Um... By the way, this is a funny just side note as a pastor. You know, you, you kind of go into the pastorate thinking um, it's going to be one way, and there's these like little surprises along the way that make it so much else. Both for the flies and the gnats, there's kind of a general word in the Hebrew for bugs. So it's a guesswork. And so when you study this passage in depth, you're, you're studying people who are guessing things like um, gnats, Lice, ticks, you know, uh, mosquitoes, flies, uh, all sorts of things. You're, it was, I had to kind of laugh at myself. But um, this, this first plague is a bug that's a grounded bug. Gnats doesn't seem to fit. King James does a little bit better. I don't think that King James is right either. It talks about lice. I think it's a better guess. Now, lice is one of those things, when we think about lice, we want to itch our head, right? I don't want any of you to itch your head at the moment. Because, of course, you don't have lice. Odds are, statistically speaking, you do not have lice right now. There are no lice crawling, not even in that back area of your head, on you. You don't have lice, you don't need to itch. 
But lice is an interesting idea. The King James translators picked it because they, they weren't aware of the fact that lice really don't also affect animals. They're, they need a human host. They need your scalp and my scalp in order to thrive and survive. But lice are animals that are insects and bugs that crawl on us undetected. You don't really feel them, even though you think you feel them on your, in your head and you want to scratch your head. You don't feel them, and, and even their eggs can kind of hide themselves. Actually, do you know the only time you can feel lice? Again, you don't have lice in your head. You don't need to itch. But the only time you can actually feel lice isn't when they bite you or they crawl on you. It's actually when they spit on you. It's saliva. That's what you feel when you feel lice on your head. And so I love the, the King James Version illustration of lice because what are those sins that scratch at us, that we itch at? The patterns, the habits. You know, my, my weight's gone upwards again. I need, I, that means I've been scratching at eating food and, and all sorts of reasons and to find comfort in. What are those sins, those, those itches that we can't, we struggle to resist? I think lice is a good illustration of that. But I don't think lice is what this is. Actually, in the Hebrew, especially in verse 18, I believe, and feel free to itch right now if you want to, okay. All right, there you go. Um, in the Hebrew, actually, my best guess, and I think it's verse 18 that states this, is that there seems to be an attached reality of this insect to the animals and to the people. So my best guess is ticks. Uh, that was the argument that won out for me. You know, we just had somebody when we went on um, sort of a vacation, a working vacation in St. Louis, um, and they had a deer tick on them. And we, we find a tick, and of course, we have to pull it out and kind of you feel creeped out by the whole thing. I think maybe my least favorite thing about living in this region of the country is the ticks. I can't, not a fan, not a fan of the ticks. Um, but here they were, and they were probably covered in ticks. Had to remove them from their body. A horrifying kind of reality are 52 different varieties of ticks in Egypt. Are there ticks in your life that are sucking out the lifeblood of your life, that are uh, engorging a, a more faithful life that you need to pull out, you need to stop? It's a question for all of us this morning. What ticks is it time to pull out? And this plague um, is another one where we hear from the magicians of Egypt. They try to match this plague. They try to make more, probably, ticks. But these mad magicians by the third plague are for all practical purposes done, trying to battle against the true God of the universe. Remember how God made clear he was going to stretch out his arm against Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Well, here are the magicians admitting defeat. 
I love the wording here. They announce that this is the finger of God. They actually use the word Elohim in the Hebrew. Uh, that's kind of the word for God that shows the, the, the large power of God, the majesty of God. It's, it's a good word to um, stress the enormity of God. Here, Pharaoh and the magicians began the conflict by thinking the Hebrews had just this made-up God. And here the magicians are saying, no, this God's enormity is, is so great that even our magic is nothing against him. There actually was a belief in the ancient world that magic was more powerful than the gods. But this God is too powerful. He only needs to lift a finger and he can bring forth calamity unlike the world has ever seen. Now, there's only four times in Scripture that the finger of God language is used. Three of them are used by Moses. And once in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verse 20, and Jesus talks about how he casts out demons by the power of the finger of God. But it's a beautiful reminder for us to, who struggle with sin that here, in order to rescue his people from Egypt and the worldliness of Egypt... God just needs to lift a finger. And so are we bringing our sins to God? Are we, are we, as we desire to see ticks removed from our body in life, are we going to the Lord who so tenderly will cast sin away and so easily cast sin away? He's faithful to save us. Just a quick aside, the other two times um, in Moses used the finger of God, it's, to talk about the writing out of the commandments in the law, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the two times the commandments are, are shared. And then, just the, to another interesting segue, do you remember what was the time that Jesus drew on the ground with his finger? The woman caught in adultery. And there's always speculation, what did Jesus draw with his finger? And I think it's kind of clear. He probably was drawing out the commandments because of the great confrontation of what is said uh, with those who want to put her to death. And so the God who can judge sin with the power of his finger, that can put the magicians to shame and cast out the demons by the power of his finger, he also has another kind of judgment, a more tender judgment, a judgment that is written on the law where even if you violate the law, our Lord can say, woman, is there anyone left to condemn you? I don't condemn you either. So go and sin no more. The judgments of God, again, they bring peace. They bring peace one way or the other. They bring peace, peace by either discouraging the magicians to continue in their rebellion, or they bring peace to a woman caught in adultery who needed forgiveness from her sins. The finger of God is the most powerful thing. The next plague is the plague of flies. And like uh, the previous plague where there was an emphasis that seemed to be on crawling insects, that attach themselves to animals. This is an emphasis on flying insects. And this is a plague that Moses makes very clear doesn't touch Goshen at all. And in this illustration, we, we receive one of the most often forgotten truths of a life lived in faithfulness. 
Yes, the Christian faith is a, a faith where we enter in by entering into the Christian faith, moments where we'll have profound suffering. But there are also benefits to the Christian life. There are protections on the roads of righteousness in the land of Goshen. Over the long haul, there is a, a noticed difference between those who have been faithful in the Lord and those who have been walking the paths of Egypt. We want to remember that. We want to remember that for a few reasons. First, we want to remember that because when we're not walking faithfully, when we're out in our communities and we're acting like the roads of Egypt are the way to walk, or we're out in our communities and, and we're giving in to, to sin, we're failing to be a distinct ministry to the people around us. Here was the land of Goshen. Anybody could go to Goshen, and some people will go to the land of Goshen for relief, for peace from these plagues. There are going to be people in heaven that were saved who go, yeah, I remember what the boils were like. Yeah, Pastor Kevin was right. It was ticks. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, they'll, they, but they were saved because in the judgments of God, eventually they looked and they said, why am I living in Egypt? I need to escape Egypt. I need to leave Egypt. I need to go to the place. I need to go to the land where I can worship the Lord. I need relief from Egypt. I need escape from Egypt. I don't need a blend of Egypt and Goshen. I need to be fully protected in the God who protects Goshen. There are going to be people that will sit by it at these feasts and these sorts of things that have these stories. And we're going to need to have these stories. These are stories we want to have. People who might walk up to us and, and, and we weren't even aware. They go, you know, you changed me. And you didn't even know it. I remember when I started seminary, I got the call from a former friend of mine and her brother had died. He died at like 20 two years old, and she wanted me to perform the funeral, and I was unfortunately in Orlando, and I, I couldn't do it, but I had a, an elder friend who was able to, to do it, and she told me that, well, she's Jewish today, we used to have these great theological discussions, and I always thought they were an utter failure because she didn't convert, she didn't become a believer. And it turns out her brother became a believer. They were raised in actually a family that's promoted godlessness, that delighted in the reasonability of atheism. And he had overheard our conversations, and he became a believer. And so that's why she wanted me to do the funeral. I had no idea I ever ministered to him. I had no idea. Totally unaware. We have moments like that, and so it's important for us in our communities to be distinct, to be Goshen, people in Goshen. Do not let the world overtake us. Do not live like the world. Also, in this plague, notice there's no mention of Aaron. It's actually Moses who does this plague. Remember how Moses came into this? Oh, God, I can't just do this with you by my side. Oh, I just can't. I can't, Lord. I'm not capable. I'm not po it's not possible. Throughout the rest of the plagues, Moses is going to take the lead. God grows us. God matures us. If you have a faith that says, no, I, I, I just can't, 
find even victory over that sin. I can't move on from that sin. Remember just this example of Moses. Moses is now doing things in this moment of Scripture that he didn't believe were possible just a few short chapters ago. God changes his own over the course of our lives. And, and so we want to be a part of that battle. And we want to come to the Lord. Now for the fifth plague, we see the Egyptian livestock die. This is a plague that is one where often skeptics have questions when it comes to the Bible. Because in the seventh plague, some more livestock are going to die. A few key things to understand. The Hebrews in Egypt are not going to have any of their livestock die in this plague. Only the Egyptians are. Which means that there are plenty of livestock left in Egypt. If you remember the story of Joseph, really, uh, the Hebrews were the ranchers. They were the first ranchers, and Pharaoh basically makes them the ranchers of Egypt. And so sometimes skeptics act like the fifth plague contradicts the seventh plague. It does not. But also, we don't know necessarily the time gaps between these plagues. We just know that it's 10 days of chaos. But still, Pharaoh refuses to relent. And remember how earlier we talked about the finger of Elohim? Well, now we have the hand of Yahweh extending in judgment. Basically, the arm of Yahweh. The Hebrew Scriptures address God both as Elohim and Yahweh. Elohim being, again, the more magnified, um, emphasized of the enormity of God, but Yahweh being the personal God, the God who personally cares. And through this plague, Pharaoh unmistakably knows now that not only is this God more powerful than anything that he can think or imagine, but also he has a personable reality to him that he cares for his people. God in this plague wants to make clear to the Pharaoh, your abuse of my people is personal to me. I'm not just a God who can, a general God who can be discounted, but I am relentless for my people. I'm relentless for the people I draw near to. And that's a good thing for us to remember. Because within our mind, we can often admit the awesome power of God, but at varying, in varying ways, we so often struggle with the God who draws near to us. The God who really wants to be close to someone like us. And yet, this is another plague where we find ourselves having a distinction between those who are God's followers and those who are not. You have a personal God in whom cares for you and protects you. And Pharaoh knew this by this plague. But he was hardened to it. And also, in this plague, the litany of Egyptian gods were killed. The, the Egyptians loved to depict their gods with the heads of animals. Think of it almost like if we went to the pagan land of, of India and all their love for like animals and thinking animals are reincarnations, these sorts of things. Um, imagine the devastation of society of if all the cows that they let walk freely in their roads and stuff were, were struck down, there would be weeping and crying in the street because these animals are gods to them. This is a little bit like what would have happened here. But our God is an idol killer. 
Worldviews that ignore God and scoff at God, they die off, and yet God faithfully remains. That means Wall Street and its false gods will one day be destroyed. That means Hollywood and its false gods will one day be destroyed. That means Washington, D.C. and its false gods will one day be destroyed. That means San Francisco and its false gods will one day be destroyed. But also, I don't think it would be fair to give up, forget, rule America either. I like rule America. I wanted to go to a rule pulpit. I remember Tim a couple years ago before, well, I guess it was about six years ago now. You want to go to a rule pulpit? Why would you want to be in the city? The city is where everything happens. I, I love being here. But I can say there are false gods in a rural environment too that we cling to here that need to be destroyed as well. God takes offenses to anything in society we lift up higher than him and set themselves up as viable alternatives to his wisdom. And just as he destroys the gods of Egypt, he one day will destroy the current gods of America. The final plague we will look at this morning is the boils. A plague of poetic justice. God loves poetic justice. The soot coming from the kiln was poetic justice because the first hardship Pharaoh gave the Hebrew people was when Pharaoh made it harder for the Hebrews to make bricks in those kilns by not giving them straw. And so now those same kilns give the Egyptians boils. Boils and sores that are so bad, even the magicians shrink away. And they don't even want to appear at court anymore. The evil magicians which had come into the battle with all sorts of bravado and confidence, they no longer will even appear in court. And so that teaches us something. Evil retreats. Evil, in one sense, is like a powerful wave at times. And we see it crash on the shore and we say, oh no, the devastation of this wave. And yet the pattern of God's design is that eventually uh, through judgment, God exposes evil and it retreats and it recedes just like an ocean wave would. You know, if you and I could go back in a time machine, if we went back 80 years, World War II is still being fought. What evils would be the evils of that day? The evils that they're worried are going to overtake society. Things like Nazism, things like communism and Marxism, which that might be making a return. Um, they would worry about the philosophies, the, the, the things of those days overtaking them. And what could we say? Don't worry. This threat will recede. This evil will recede. If we go back 50 years ago, it'd be, you know, the, the Cold War. You know, we're ducking under tables because somehow a school desk was designed in a way that protects you from thermonuclear warfare. And what would we say? We would even duck under the desks. And they'd say, you're crazy. Don't you know that this is how you're going to protect yourself from thermonuclear war? By the way, I didn't. I never ducked under the desk. I had this complaint in the 80s. But, you know, aren't you crazy? Don't you know that just in a 
twinkling in an eye, the, the Soviets are going to blow us up. Don't, no, don't worry. This, this evil will one day recede. And so there's a pattern to evil. There's a pattern to God's judgment that, that the evils of our day are, yes, they're overwhelming. The wave is awful. The wave is awful, and it's going to spend all next month reminding us of how awful it is. But one day it's going to be judged, and it's going to recede, and God in his judgment always brings peace. And the people who are in that wave, some of them are going to say, you know what, I don't want to recede back into evil again. I want to be a part of the land of Goshen. I want to be a part of a, a new identity. I want to be worship the true God. I want to stop trying to find identity and, and all these feely, like, nasal-gazing philosophies. But actually find an identity in the God who loves me so much, who's so personally intimate with his people that he, he protects them in a way that he can be called Yahweh, Adonai. And so God uses judgments to bring peace. And so we, as people of the greater exodus, we are people of the judgment of the cross. And so it's, it's not that our message is not repent. It's not that our message is, is not uh, go and sin no more, even, to, to strive for that. But also, whether it's an adulterous woman or a person who's got caught up in the judgments and the, the godless philosophies of our age, this evil one day will recede. And what will they have then? So we need to reach out to those people and say, you don't need to retreat back into those waters of evil. You don't need to retreat back into that gross wickedness. You don't need to retreat back into that lifestyle. You don't need to retreat back into that philosophy. What you need to do is find comfort, find identity, find peace through the judgment that was poured upon the Son on the cross for our sin, for our sake, and for our salvation. It's through that greater exodus, that greater judgment, that we can come to love the Lord, to desire to serve the Lord, and to make peace with God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that for all evil, there is a day appointed for it all to retreat, for it all to go away in its entirety. We await that day. We await that wedding feast. And we thank you that while we too have uh, been at times covered in sin and done little to remove it from our lives, you still are the God who intimately pursued us. And so make us more faithful worshipers of you. Make us more faithful in our charge, in our stead, in our testimony, out in the world about you. Let us share with people about how we have access to the heavenly places through the blood of the Lamb. I pray that for each one of us this week. Give us opportunities to share the gospel this week. And now, Lord, we take a moment to quietly and privately confess our sins before you. Amen.